You're listening to the SEI podcast series, brought to you by the Sydney Environment Institute at the University of Sydney. Hi, everyone. So I'd like to start this evening by acknowledging the uh, Gadigal people of the Eora Nation on whose unceded land we meet tonight, and to acknowledge uh, the traditional elders, past and present, who loved and lived with and took care of this land and its surrounding seas. My name's Susan Reed, and I am really privileged to be here tonight to chair this Sydney Ideas and Sydney Environment Institute event. Um, so yes, thank you for all coming along. This uh, lovely, foolish room of ocean-curious people. Uh, who would have thought that a fascinating conversation about the ocean and imagination could trump an opportunity to watch a live broadcast of the national budget. <laughs> so thank you for coming along. And um, yeah, thanks again to Sydney Ideas and the Sydney Environment Institute for hosting this event. So the theme for tonight is void, mirror, sanctuary, habitat, drowned earth, see if I get this pronunciation right, Brian, Nalpunmalu, saltwater country. These represent a tiny fraction of the ideas and images the ocean has been seen to express and how the ocean has lived with. This Sydney Ideas Seminar will gather insights from philosophy, marine geoscience, art and literature to explore how different ways of knowing the sea have informed one another and how they might inform one another in the future. Science can explain how waves activate ocean forms and how these forms affect lives, sands, reefs and coastlines. And through poetry and art, it's possible to witness how waves and other sea structures have stimulated imaginations to move beyond the limits of the shore. And truly thinking past terrestrial boundaries requires new connections among ethics, natural science, and creative practice. So the ocean moves. The ocean is the largest moving thing most of us is ever likely to witness. In Australia, it connects us nationally along more than 36,700 kilometres of coastline apparently 10,000 beaches, washing and stirring the edges of continents and islands. We are a nation of such extensive and dynamic ocean form, with such cultural significance carried in our oceanic attachments. And through climate change, we can observe the ocean warming and materially changing in our time. And if thoughtful policies reflect a subject's political importance, if a subject means, if a policy means a government takes a subject seriously, how must we construe the fact that we have no co coherent ocean policy? In these complex and tricky times of ocean exploitation and anthropogenic climate change, nothing could be more radical than ignoring the ocean or the perpetuation of knowledge silos.
it's not just that interdisciplinary problems call for interdisciplinary actions and thinking. Opening our knowledge-making processes to transdisciplinary explorations is also about cultivating potential and working towards more companionable ways of thinking and living with the ocean. So I won't rabbit on because there's three fantastic speakers who are going to um, share their thoughts and their expertise with you tonight. And with all of that in mind, here to explore tonight's Sydney Ideas theme are Dr Killian Quigley, Associate Professor Anna Villa Conciescio. <laughs> Sorry, Anna. I have dual um, pronunciations there. And Brian Robinson. And from their specialist fields of marine science, literature and visual arts, our speakers are here to share their fascination with ocean forms and their wonderful work. My challenge to the audience in our Q&A session later, so start thinking now, <laughs> is to imagine the ocean forms with us and find connections within this discussion. So the format, very briefly, is going to be each of the speakers will come up individually and they'll spend about 10 minutes um, presenting their ideas and work with you. Uh, we'll then have a panel discussion and then open uh, the event up to you um, to hear your thoughts as well. The first speaker tonight, uh, please welcome Dr. Killian Quigley to the stage. Killian is a postdoctoral research fellow with the Sydney Environment Institute. He is co-editing with Margaret Cohen, Sense of the Submarine, a cultural history of the undersea. Killian's writings have appeared in Make, 18th Century Life, the 18th Century, the newsletter of the Australian Coral Reef Society and SEI's blog. He convenes the Reading Environments Group at the University of Sydney and is at work on a poetic and aesthetic history of the ocean entitled Seascape and the submarines. Thanks, Killian. Thanks a lot, Sue. Um, enormous thanks to all of my colleagues and to all of you for being here. What I want briefly to do is, is train our attention on seascape and to consider what becomes of such attention. In other words, what's seen, felt, interpreted, and understood along the surfaces of the ocean. One of the things I focus most intently upon in my own research is how ways of seeing, interpreting, writing, and art making that come into being on land, terrestrial ways, if you will, behave unusually when they take to or are taken to the waves. I'm curious, for example, about how one moves from looking at a landscape to looking at a picture like this one, Mustafa Abdulaziz's photographic seascape of the ocean off Snæfellsnes in Western Iceland. So in what follows, I'm gonna talk briefly about a very few works of literature, criticism, and art, works that have lately been helping me think about how different conventions and different traditions in the imaginative arts enable different ways of perceiving the ocean and receiving its stories. So first to 1807, and the publication of Germain de Staël's Cochine, whose titular heroine travels to Italy in search of a link to the cultures of European classical antiquity. At Ancona, in the Marche region, 
her narrator overlooks the Adriatic and remarks upon that sublime spectacle, the sea, on whose bosom man has never been able to imprint the smallest trace. The earth is tilled by him, the mountains are cut through by his roads, and rivers shut up into canals to transport his merchandise. But if the waves are furrowed for a moment by, the vessels his, by his vessels, the billows immediately efface this slight mark of servitude, and the sea appears again as it was on the first day of the creation. Cochin's seascape expresses an appealing sense of wonder and humility, as well as a perhaps familiar hope that the ocean can transcend the various stressors it faces, that it can, in other words, efface those marks of servitude once and for all. And thinking of that servitude, it's worth noting that the narrator's use of the word man is more than generic. For de Stael, this idealized sea power is implicitly contrasted with patriarchy and with tyranny, agents that, it goes without saying, continue to operate in ecologically and otherwise consequent fashion two centuries after her novel's publication. But of course, it's also true that the narrator is, to a large extent, wrong, or at least being deliberately naive for rhetorical purposes. The sea doesn't settle back into an unspoiled state once the ship has disappeared from view. And that word trace is worth mulling over, because to read it today is to feel a frustrating kind of irony. For all that's now known about the extent and intensity of human impacts on the ocean, those impacts continue too often to go undetected. An unusually disastrous example and potent emblem of this has been happening since January of this year, when a tanker called Sanxi collided with a cargo ship in the East China Sea. The Sanxi, which appears vaguely here in this spectral underwater photograph, burned for eight days before sinking. Each of the 32 persons who crewed it died. As of mid-February, at least 111,000 tons of condensate, and those are official estimates, had spilled into the sea. Condensate is a toxic liquid produced during the production of natural gas. And unlike crude oil, which was so recognizably rampant in the aftermaths of the Exxon Valdez, Deepwater Horizon, and other catastrophes, condensate is nearly invisible. It is, in other words, unspectacular, difficult to picture. It barely leaves a visual trace. In the wake of the Sanchi, which lies at the bottom of the East China Sea, and so is also undetectable, so to speak, from the ocean's surface, it's imperative to consider how events like this one haunt wave action and seascape whenever and wherever, and to wonder how best to read oceanic forms for traces that may not immediately present themselves. What sorts of senses need encouraging or creating to see the Sanchi and other stories on the surface of the sea. For me, these questions recall the work of John Acomfra, the artist whose three-channel Vertigo Sea from 2016 intermingles archival video, 
natural history films and original scenes to create a dizzyingly and at times terrifyingly awesome oceanic vision, one that draws simultaneously upon the aesthetic, the ecological, and the political. Displaced persons in the Mediterranean, whales harpooned and butchered at sea, an atomic bomb exploded at Bikini Atoll, the murder of enslaved persons transported across the Atlantic aboard a vessel called Zong in 1781. For a comfra, it doesn't make sense to think about the ocean without also thinking about these things, individually and all at once. The ocean, in other words, has stories and histories, a fact that may be obvious to many of you, but that has, a comfra argues, been backgrounded, literally and figuratively, in certain representational and narrative traditions. What happens, a comfra seems to ask, when the ocean is foregrounded, or when the boundaries separating foreground from background dissolve. To say that the ocean has stories and histories isn't the same thing as saying that these stories and histories are only human, or that the sea is only interpretable insofar as it reflects human behavior. Acomfra speaks about the ocean as the abode of innumerable ghosts, and as a place where things not only disappear, but are made to reemerge, sometimes strangely, and often in a manner beyond human control. Thinking along these lines, maybe it isn't so much a matter of willing the ocean to express certain meanings, or studying it for particular signs, but opening oneself to its communications. These communications may not be immediately comprehensible, and they are very likely to, pr to prove unfamiliar not to say uncomfortable, but they constitute a language needing learning. Part of doing so, of course, is acknowledging forms, conventions, traditions, and cultures that have historically been better students. When a comfort talks about how the ocean presents things to awareness in surprising and significant ways, he reminds me of something the novelist and critic Amitav Ghosh writes about climate change and its relationship to literature. In a book called The Great Derangement, Climate Change and the Unthinkable, Ghosh argues, among other things, for better recognizing the participation of the planet in narratives that might seem fully anthropogenic. For example, of the Sundarbans wetlands in the Bay of Bengal, Ghosh writes that, I do believe it to be true that the land here is demonstrably alive that it does not exist solely or even incidentally as a stage for the enactment of human history, that it is itself a protagonist. Now, Ghosh isn't saying that his point is unprecedented, that he's happened upon a hitherto undiscovered truth about the world. His point, rather, is that certain conventions in bourgeois culture and politics have suppressed this understanding, have, in his words, participated in modes of concealment. And like a comfra, Ghosh contends that when the earth asserts itself, it does so unexpectedly and uncannily, in ways that confront bourgeois modernity with facts about itself that it had forgotten or chosen to ignore, but cannot help in the end to recognize. I want to finish today with a work and an artist that I encountered only recently, 
not long after moving to Australia in August last year. Angela Tiatia's Tuvalu, which you can go see now at the Australian Museum, is, like Vertigo Sea, a three-channel film. Tuvalu depicts the slow inundation of Funafuti, the nation's capital atoll, by the ocean as it rises in response to climate change. As this still from the film suggests, Tiatia is attentive to the mundane, to, for example, a gravel surface as it floods, quiet, unobtrusive, potently meaningful. Her three channels sometimes portray a cohesive image, sometimes portray altogether different scenes, and sometimes, as here, portray images that are sufficiently similar to make the differences between them that much more strange and striking. By staggering and repeating, her images interfere with linear narrative structure, implying, among other things, that climate change progresses slowly, repetitively, dully, and sometimes out of sight. And images like these also make for weird transpositions. Forget about terrestrial knowledge going to sea, this is the ocean coming to land. This, maybe, is a collection of seascapes. And by reintroducing her viewer in the course of Tuvalu to the sort of image that some audiences might anticipate from a Pacific seascape, like the one it left here. Tiatia returns to a conventional image, but only after scrambling its context and while asserting Tuvaluan lives, making it difficult ever to apprehend such a shot without acknowledging those contexts and hailing those persons. By recognizing the ocean as made of tangled relations among social, cultural, colonial, and ecological stories and histories, as well as pasts, presents, and futures, Tuvalu complicates our views. Tiatia's work empowers its viewer with a heightened sensibility, one worth carrying to all oceanic prospects, like this remarkable one, also from Abdulaziz, with whose work I began this presentation. If attending to the ocean in all its forms is one of the primary ecological and ethical projects of our time, then becoming better seascapists is probably a task worth undertaking. Thank you. Thank you so much. Please let us welcome our next speaker, Anna, uh, Anna Villa Conchejo. Anna's career has taken her from Spain and Portugal to Sydney, where she is now Associate Professor with the University of Sydney's Faculty of Science. She is Deputy Director of One Tree Island Research Station, and between 2012 and 2015, Anna was also the station's director. In 2011, Anna was awarded an ARC Future Fellowship to support her research into coral reef morphodynamics and the dynamics of coral sands. Please welcome Anna. Hello. Good evening, everyone. So I must confess that I'm not very good at staying behind a lectern, but I have been instructed that I have to do it. So I will try. So if you see me holding on to the lectern, it's not to move away from it. 
So I'm going to talk today about uh, waves and coral reefs. Um, this is an image uh, taken with a drone in the Maldives last year. Okay, so this is a little outline. So I'm going to talk very briefly about uh, wave formation, travel and transformation. Also about coral reefs and tropical storms. And then finally, about a very important service that coral reefs do that is uh, wave dissipation. This uh, map here shows some of the places where I have worked. And today I'm going to be talking about my work on tropical reefs in Japan, the Maldives, and the Great Barrier Reef. Okay, but before, and to link it with uh, Killian's talk, I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, how waves are formed. And uh, the truth is that most of the waves that we see on our coasts, they are formed very far away. Uh, there are storms in the middle of the ocean where the wind from the storms drags the surface of the sea over a large extent of water, and that extent of water is called fetch. So we basically need three ingredients. We need wind spin, wind duration, and the fetch length. And the larger the ingredients, the larger the waves. Okay, so we have this area in the middle of the ocean. We will have all of these waves of different sizes, uh, getting together. That's quite similar to the first image that um, Killian had in his presentation. So in deep water, the waves travel at a speed that is given only by the size of the waves. So the larger waves travel faster. So think about a long distance race. Think about the Olympics and the 10,000 kilometers, rather. Uh, and so you have the pack of uh, runners starting in the beginning of the race, and then as the race progresses, the runners are slowly breaking up into different groups. This is what happens with waves. So we have the generation area, where we have the waves all of different sizes, and then the larger waves uh, go faster than the smaller ones, and they keep on separating in small groups of different sizes. And by the time they make it to the surf zone, yeah, where the shoaling and breaking occurs, we normally have these very clean pulses of swell that consist of waves of one size only, okay? Once they're in shallow water, they start to feel the seafloor, and uh, that friction force is the main control to their speed. So all waves at a given water depth travel at the same speed, okay? So, Tropical storms and coral reefs. This map here, the light is not very good, sorry. So um, these red dots here are the coral reefs of the world. And these funky looking lines here is the cyclone, hurricane, typhoon, tropical storm tracks since uh, between 1842 and 2014. So the first thing that we can see here is that there are two types of coral reefs. Those that exist without cyclones, hurricanes, tropical storms in general, and those that are affected regularly by coral reefs, by tropical storms. And those are about 70% of the coral reefs of the world are regularly affected by tropical storms. So the first thing that we think when we find this information is that this must be modifying the coral reefs somehow. And it does. Okay, so what we have here is a cross-section of a typical coral reef, and we have the ocean side, which is called the fore reef, 
and uh, we can see it here in this image of a uh, one tree island, is where we have the spurs and grooves, which are these linear indentations, which are perpendicular to the coast. I don't know if you can see them, but. And uh, then we have uh, the reef flats, where we have reef islands and other deposits. And then we have the lagoon and the back reef, okay? So tropical storms have two types of uh, effects. We can speak of destructive effects, loss of coral, erosion, all of the destruction that we are familiar with, yeah? But we also have constructive processes. So by breaking the coral, they are creating sediments, and that sediment is then going to be moved by that storm or other storms to create land, okay? That's how we have some of those islands. And uh, these destructive and constructive effects are different on the different parts of the reef. And today, I'm just going to talk a bit of what happens to the waves when they arrive to the fore reef and disperse and groups. Okay, so tropical storms are important for coral reefs because of the destructive and constructive events that I just mentioned, but also because they cool down the water during the hottest months. And this is very important, and it has prevented bleaching in the past, for example, in the Southern Great Barrier Reef in 2016. Also, a very important ecosystem service that coral reefs provide is protecting the land behind them. Um, and what I'm going, if this moves, yes, it does. Uh, I'm going to show today some results from um, wave dissipation uh, during a typhoon that uh, we measured in Japan in September 2016. Uh, this is how the reef was looking when we arrived. It was bleaching as we were speaking. It was very sad, but at the same time very beautiful because the algae hadn't taken over. So we were in this tiny island in the South China Sea. We were working in this um, area here. There is a, a barrier reef in here. And uh, we were lucky in two ways. We were lucky because while we were there, we uh, the typhoon developed so fast that we couldn't get our instruments out. So it was a, a chance that we probably wouldn't have taken if we had a choice. And we're lucky the second time because uh, the storm was very powerful, but it wasn't powerful enough as to break all of our instruments. So we have data. So it developed very close to where we were, and I'm going to show you today data from these three sensors. So from the deepest to the shallowest, and it's just wave data, what I'm showing. This is uh, one of the deployments. So you can see here the divers putting the instruments in the reef. We just get these instruments and use some cable ties to put them into the reef. And uh, you can see how sadly uh, everything is uh, bleaching. Okay, so this is the data. I'm not going to go into much detail here, but what I want you to see, so this is maximum wave height and this is significant wave height. And in any case, during fair weather conditions, in maximum we had about less than one meter and we reached five meters. The same with the significant. We went from less than half a meter to 2.5 meters. So during the typhoon, the incident waves in the area were five times the size that they are normally are. Uh, if we look at the wave dissipation, we're measuring the energy that is dissipating in between sensors here. So we have the pink one, yeah, is the, the dissipation in between the two outer sections. Uh, sections, 
And so we have here how it goes from 0.001 to 0.03. So I know too many zeros, but basically it's 30 times, okay? So the protection that the coral reefs are giving in this, in the, in this moment during the typhoon is super important for the um, coast behind them. So the, there haven't been many studies on wave dissipation on coral reefs, at least not in the, in the fourth reef in the world. These are the, the, the rates that we have in this study in, Kame, in Kume Islands. These, um, these blue ones are from one tree. You can see how some of them are the highest that have ever been measured, and some of them are from Tahiti. And then there are others that have been published. So the four reef, and particularly spurs and grooves, are instrumental to dissipate the energy from the waves. Between 33 and 86% of the wave energy is dissipating on the four reef even before it arrives to the reef flat. And there are studies that show that 95% of the energy that arrives to the reef flat is dissipated on the reef flat. Another very famous wave dissipator is mangroves, and uh, they, they have been known to protect some areas uh, during tsunami, for example. And when it, you go down to the numbers, mangroves dissipate between 13 and 66% of the of the energy, so less than coral reefs. So, to conclude, coral reefs are the most efficient natural wave dissipators on Earth, and so we need to take care of them. They provide a very valuable ecosystem service to the land behind coral reefs, and the dissipation occurs due to two processes. One is bottom friction, which is due to the rugosity of the coral reefs, so coral reefs are these uh, 3D um, organisms yeah, that stop the, the waves. And uh, the other is wave breaking. And wave breaking depends on water depth. So with climate change, we're expecting to have uh, deeper water as coral reefs uh, get flooded with water. And uh, we are also expecting to have less rugosity as bleaching modifies um, our coral reefs. So wave dissipation capacity will be affected or is affected by climate change with deeper reefs, with less coral, and therefore will have less dissipation. Okay? And that's it. Thank you very much. So great. Thanks, Anna. Our next speaker and our last speaker tonight is um, artist Brian Robinson, a contemporary artist whose practice includes painting, printmaking, sculpture and design. And the graphic style of Brian's work combines his Torres Strait Island heritage uh, with a strong passion for experimentation, both in theoretical approach and medium, and it also crosses boundaries between reality and fantasy. The results combine style the results combine styles as diverse as graffiti art through to intricate relief carvings and construction sculptures that echo images of Torres Strait cultural motives, objects and activity. Uh, Brian's received numerous national and state awards and is represented in national and international collections and he was previously Deputy Director of Cairns Art Gallery and has held numerous p board positions. Uh, including as the first Torres Strait Island representative on the Board of Trustees of the Queensland Art Gallery. Um, please join me in welcoming Brian tonight.
Welcome everyone, my name is Brian Robinson. Um, before I do begin, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land that we're gathered on um, here this evening um, for this magnificent Oceans Forum. Um, and I suppose, firstly, as a quick language lesson, uh, the, the title of this presentation is called Nalpan Malu. Nalpan Malu is traditional Western Island language in the dialect of Kalalagawya, which translates into English as our sea. So I suppose this presentation is basically broken up into, I suppose, two sort of aspects. One which shows um, a number of uh, scenes throughout the Torres Strait, where um, I was uh, born and bred, and I suppose derive a lot of my um, imagery from for my artistic practice. Um, and then the, the second part is also um, uh, some of the artworks that have been created that have sea life and I suppose that, that ocean connection uh, to them. So this is uh, Erub or Danley Island out in the Eastern Islands. You can see all the um, uh, rock um, uh, stone walls for all the, uh, all the fish. This is the uh, Murray Island group, Mare, Dawar and Weyer, out in the Eastern Islands. Basically a stone, stone throw away from the uh, Eastern Islands is the, um, uh, is the start of the Great Barrier Reef, which wraps down the east coast of um, Queensland. And then you've got um, Ulkar, Stephen Island, also out in, the, out in the Eastern group. And Warabir, or Sioux Island, in the central. So you can see, you know, some, some of the islands um, that have been shown have quite different, you know, um, makeup. This one being uh, a coral, you know, sort of um, K that has um, built up over the years. Uh, the, the first ones through the um, Eastern Islands are um, remnants of uh, volcanic um, activity. So everything under creation is represented in the land, in the sea, and in the sky. These are all intertwined, and for this reason, they play a significant role in Zenithkes tradi traditions. Law and life originates in and is governed by these elements. They inform islander laws, customs, and practices that are recorded and handed down in the form of song, story, dance, cer ceremony, and artifact. This connection gives islander people their identity and a sense of place and belonging. Torres Strait Islanders reside in a narrow waterway between the land masses of Zaid Dagam Daudai, Australia in the south, and Nagai Dagam Daudai, Papua New Guinea in the north, where the coral and arafura seas meet in one of the most fragile and intricate waterways in the world. These are just a few of a uh, few images showing people. Uh, fishing, you know, sort of connecting with the, uh, the salt water that surrounds our islands. This one uh, is on Wyburn or Thursday Island, the, the island that I uh, grew up in, the Low and Western group. A gentleman in the Eastern Islands, out on Stephen Island, harvesting um, cray from the, from the seas. So the, the seawater and the currents of Torres Strait provide staple food sources as well as economic benefits. Export of marine life such as fish, crayfish, pearls and pearl shell. The sea is central and essential element to the unique cultural lifestyle and ritual observance 
of the people since traditional times long before European exploration and settlement. Islanders gained experience with important phenomena and seafaring operations were not separate from the web of life. Ocean waves and their, their orientation, scale and velocity of colours in the sea and the sky, the formation of clouds clustering over islands were all a part of the education of young people growing up in the area. My creativity is driven by a connection of all these things and the resulting visual language represented by my work becomes a consequence of my Melanesian heritage, intertwined with pop culture and global mythology. Gentlemen, fishing from uh, a concrete ramp out on York Island, wooden masks and turtle shell masks, circa 1850s. Ritual observance gave shape to the islanders' gods. This spirit world was given form through the creation of ritual objects, in particular ceremonial masks used in dance. Masks were the medium by which islanders could evoke protection during war, hunting, initiation, cult practices and food increase ceremonies. Masks constructed from turtle shell were the most distinctive and highly embellished of all objects from the Torres Strait. Turtle shell masks were a central component to the ritual observance throughout most of the islands in the western, eastern and central groups. Top western islands also used wooden masks obtained via trade. You can see the, the two versions here. The one on your left, a wooden mask, um, called a mawa mask, and then the, the turtle shell mask, which is the full carapace of the, um, of the hawksbill turtle um, on your right. And you can notice, you can see all the, all the incised fretwork that um, basically wraps right around the entire mask itself. Islanders played close attention to the night sky which enabled them to predict weather patterns and seasonal change. These knowledge systems, which seek to understand, explain and predict nature, are passed to successive generations through oral tradition. In the Western Islands, there are four main seasons that cycle throughout the year. Solal, Raz, Kuki and Albad. Solal, mid-October to late November, begins the yearly cycle and takes its name from the readily caught mating turtles indicating their abundance as food. Cookie, mid-March to mid-May, is a season where strong winds blow from the northwest, accompanied by deluges of rain. In between storms, it is very humid. There is no wind and the seas are calm and glassy. The yams are not quite ready, so vegetables such as kulap are eaten, and kulap is the... the the matchbox bean. Albad, which is late in May to early October, is harvest season, when roots are strong and food, especially taro, sweet potato and wild yam, is in abundance. The southwest winds begin to blow steadily. This season signals the time for performances of various ceremonies. And those two masks that were pictured previously were some of the masks actually used in some of these ceremonies. Usal, which is the Pleiades star constellation, also appears during this season. These are just um, a, a dance headdress that was um, created up in the Torres Straits by an elderly uh, gentleman from Badu by the name of James Esley. 
So it shows the, the connection that islanders have to the, the surrounding seas, mangroves, all the environments that make up the, uh, make up the, the land, the sea and the sky, basically. This is, a, this is an illustration by a gentleman by the name of Sigar Passi. Um, quite a well-known illustration um, from a book called Myths and Legends of the Torres Strait um, by Margaret Laurie. So Margaret is, uh, wasn't a historian from the um, John Oxley Library in um, Queensland, um, and she spent a number of years from the, the late 60s into the early 70s recording traditional myths and legends from the Torres Strait um, about, you know, sort of how natural phenomena and um, mythology came to create the, the, the various landforms and seascapes throughout the area. So this one is a, is a legend um, that wraps probably halfway across the, the Torres Strait. Um, and as a quick um, introduction to that, uh, to that legend, I suppose, which is called Gelam, um, it was a, a young boy and his mother. His mother um, did a few... Um, made him upset on a number of occasions. Um, so he had dreamed to um, escape the island and his mother and he carved um, a dugong out of um, various types of timber um, and then climbed into that dugong, you know, sort of took in all of his supplies, his seeds and food and things like that, and swam away. His mother actually saw the dugong swimming out, um, out near the reef, um, became really upset and started to cry because she knew her son was in the dugong, um, and she actually um, started to cry, and all her tears then turned her to stone and she's still out on, the, out on that same spot where she saw the dugong. And so he sort of swam right across, you know, halfway across the Torres Straits um, and threw out a couple of seeds um, before he reached the island of Murray. Um, and those two seeds became the island of Dawar and Weir. The seas throughout the Torres Strait, while being a central component to the culture, is also one of the biggest threats. Rising sea levels as a direct impact of climate change is not a matter for political debate, but a reality. Around 8,000 people call the Straits home and they are already exposed to these impacts. King tides, flooding, unpredictable weather patterns impede their everyday lives. Island erosion and tidal inundation, major, major hazards threatening communities, cultural sites, infrastructure throughout the region. Central islands, which are Coral Cay, and top western islands, which are alluvial mud deposits built up over the years, are the main areas being affected to date throughout the Torres Straits. Climate change impacts marine ecosystems and fisheries, which then have a flow-on effect to local communities, economy, culture, water supply, and general health. Adaptation programs and partnership with researchers from James Cook University have begun ensuring that ancestral lands and cultural roots are preserved by planning for the future. So this is the, the coming into the second part, I suppose, of the talk, which is some of the weird and wonderful forms that I've created over the years. This one here, starting back in, um, back in 98. This was actually an old exhibition crate um, 
that was left at the Cairns Regional Gallery and this is what um, I turned that exhibition crate into. So it's all um, plywood, I suppose, with uh, woven coconut matting attached. And it's basically a whole host of marine animals that, um, that are found through the straits. So this piece is, as the title um, says, as the sea gods awoken. So when you look at my practice, I suppose, you know, there's, there's never a dull moment because I produce quite prolifically across a number of different um, practices, I suppose. So I do a lot of printmaking, a lot of sculpture, and a lot of public art. Um, this is an iconic work, I suppose has become an iconic work for, for the region of, uh, of Cairns, um, and it's basically used on you know, a whole stack of tourist bits and pieces to promote not only Cairns, but Queensland and sometimes Australia. Um, this one is called Woven Fish, produced in 2003, and they actually sit in the swimming lagoon on the Cairns foreshore. So, printmaking, navigating narrative, Nemo's encounter in the Torres Straits, 2012. As a child, I suppose, you know, I had a number of very influential um, novels that I've, that I've read, um, and this one is my interpretation of uh, a section of, of a great novel called 20,000 Leagues Under the, Under the Sea by Jules Verne. Um, so about halfway through the book, there's a, uh, there's a chapter on uh, the, the good old Nautilus going through or coming close, coming close to the Torres Straits. And I, I always wanted to, I suppose, you know, sort of depict in, you know, sort of visual form that, that uh, chapter there. So this is my interpretation of that. So you've got a couple of canoes coming from either side with uh, Torres Strait warriors, you know, sort of standing up with, you know, um, all their spears and um, uh, axes and things like that. And then you've got the, the Nautilus sub submarine just poking through the middle of the, um, of the image there as well. And then you'll see, notice in the back, you know, sort of for, uh, background to the, to the print, um, a whole host of publications, which I suppose really, you know, sort of references the um, the idea of you know sort of using a lot of these publications for um, for the visualization of you know some of the works that I do create. So the, these books, you know, are basically some of the the bibles that I use. So you've got you know essential Superman encyclopedia. You've got you know Leonardo. Um, uh, da Vinci, you've got Michelangelo, you've got M.C. Escher, Drawing Anatomy, Oceanic Art. So these are a lot of the, the you know, sort of Bibles that I flick through sometimes on a, on a daily basis to draw inspiration and, you know, look for research and things like that from Three Fishermen in the, in the Lamborghini. So the, the work isn't your, you know, isn't your typical subject um, matter, I suppose. So three, three gentlemen each having a different um, uh, fishing, you know, sort of item. First guy has a, uh, has a spear, the se second guy has a um, handheld um, fishing line, and the third guy has um, got a, a large cast net. In the middle of all of those gentlemen is, a, is an esky with a whole hope of um, uh, fish tails sticking out, and then right down to the um, uh, right-hand side there, you've got the, the good old Lamborghinis, you know, sort of backside poking into the print as well. So this is, you know, sort of one of those 
typical wharf scenes that you see up in the Torres Straits with all these fantastic European sports cars getting about. I wish. <laughs> Generally got, yeah, broken out old rusty uh, Toyotas and things like that, that that are on the wharf. Carries in a floral landscape. Another public art piece, Woven Wonders of the Reef, which is basically a, a children's playscape at... Um, uh, at the DFO shopping centre as, um, as part of Skygate at the Brisbane airport. Malugitalail, 2016. These are large crabs, and when I'm talking large, you're probably looking from the, from the backside to the front of the nippers, about four metres, um, and across the, the shell, you're probably looking at about three metres. So these, this is one of three crabs that were created for the Oceanographic um, Museum in Monaco. Um, and we managed to actually uh, attach these to the pillars um, of that building. Another work, Land, Sea and Sky, charting our place in the universe. And on the fifth day, the, t the, the water swarmed with sea creatures, which is, I suppose, a, a fusion of Torres Strait imagery, um, uh, Greek mythology with the pillars, you know, sort of holding up the, the, the sky and the earth, as well as biblical narrative, which is, as the title suggests, you know, the, this godlike figure putting all the sea life into the sea. And the last piece which is one of my most um, recent um, public art pieces, Reef Guardian, Citizens Gateway to the Great Barrier Reef, done last year. Um, a piece that's about six metres high, 12 metres long, and about five metres wide. So it's a large helix waveform, basically, so people can walk actually through the, through the middle of the helix. So it was commissioned by um, both local, state and federal governments to, to produce this piece uh, for Cairns. Um, looking at, I suppose, starting the, uh, a social movement about the preservation of the Great Barrier Reef. So if you can see in the large helix, there's a whole host of different marine and estuary animals. And then on the back of the um, uh, stinger itself, it's full of all those same carved patterns that are then created um, into my liner cut prints. Um, so I've been given the... Get off stage, Brian, you're talking too long. Okay, so thank you very much.